Hey guys, and welcome to season three of the Us People podcast. I'm your host, Savio Rox, and in this season, I get to make my guests laugh, cry, and even make them think about life a little differently with the questions I fire over to them, which digs into their lives and professions a little differently. We even had a chance to change up the intro, giving you a fresh new sound. I look forward to sharing season three of the Us People podcast with you. Let's go. Hello, I'm Carly Lykergu, barrister at Doughty Street and the founder of Ivy and Normanton Legal Outfitters. You're listening to Us People podcast with Savia Rocks. Made up my mind, now's my time to shine. Now's my time to shine. Time that you let go, time that you let go now. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Ask People Podcast. I'm your host, Savvy Rocks, and today I'm humbled to have Carlia here with me, who is a barrister. I'm so excited to actually speak to you, Carlia. The reason being is I've only ever had one other barrister on the show, but I've never actually managed to ask the questions that I want to ask a barrister because I've learned so much and I've done so much more research from my first interview compared to the interview we're about to do now. So... My first thing to uh, to say to you, Carly, is thank you so much for coming on the Us People podcast and being a guest. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be speaking to you. Perfect. So my first question to you, Carly, is could you tell me a little bit about yourself, of where you grew up, your background, but also how that influenced you to be the person who you are today? Oh, that's that's a big question. Um... So I am, I'm from London, from North London. Um, my, my family background is Greek Cypriot. My uh, grandparents came over from Cyprus. My mum's side from the 60s. My dad's side uh, sort of came, went, came, went back and forth. Dad was born over there. Mum was born here. I was born over here um so I've grown up with a culture in in North London and um and I went to secondary school here and always wanted to be a lawyer I suppose it sort of started quite early on with arguments on the 699 whenever I got on the bus it just seemed that there was always some sort of debate happening whether it was I remember quite a fierce one over Ninja Turtles versus Power Rangers <laughs> that was that was the real like and where and where chickens come from but there was like really fierce debates and it was before we all had proper internet on our phones so you'd spend a long time on this stuff um and uh, and I always had a very key sort of keen sense of justice and wanted to do something that had a social purpose so um it, it felt like lawyers if the law governs everything and the people who know the law always seem to me the best people who were able to change it and challenge it and to stand up for other people who didn't know it so well and so it always felt very important to me that th- this was a route that I wanted to go down I didn't always know that I wanted to be a barrister. It took it took a lot of years of building up my confidence to get to the point where I felt able to go for it because it's a very competitive industry. Yeah. And um, 
and yeah it, it took a while and I think I at school I was sort of the one who was yeah I wasn't necessarily like that girl who was kind of flirting with guys and and what I was certainly some of that on MSN obviously um but <laughs> I was more like the one sort of arguing in class and being told to sort of pipe down um and so it took a while to build up that confidence to go for it but over time I did um and you know went to university and, and took every opportunity I could to study abroad and to and to go see the world and do as much as I could I got into NGOs and charity work death penalty stuff um mm. and eventually uh, made my way over to the bar a sort of very sort of concise <laughs> I like <laughs> it, of how I got there um but yeah that's a rough overview that's amazing it must have been quite a journey for you because that's something I do want to talk about is your journey there but also before I even ask you that is a question that I also is a reflection question that I love asking every single guest that comes on the show is have you ever who do you see when you look in the mirror it's very important who do you see when you look in the mirror but also what does your reflection Carlia say back to you as a person but on the flip side of that question also has there ever been a moment in your life where you have looked in a mirror but did not recognize the person staring back at you um She's got more wrinkles than she used to have. Nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, <laughs> she's got more wrinkles. But no, I recognise her and I like her. And it's always been quite important to me that um, that I liked the person that I could look at in the mirror. Um, and I think that goes sort of hand in hand with ideas of integrity for me. Being able to look at yourself in the mirror and think I like the person who I see in that she's um and when I think about you know what what course to take sometimes I think about am I going to still like that person in the mirror if I do this or that yeah but there's also a sense of forgiveness as well because we're not we're not perfect um and there will be times where you don't take the right course and um and I think sometimes it's about being kind to that person in the mirror and not carrying things too much or not being too harsh on that person in the mirror because you know she's not looking her best that day or you know giving her props when she is looking her best some days yeah it's true you're like bloody hell you've done a good job today another day is not so much (laughs) but it's about I think when the way I interpret that question is sort of sometimes seeing yourself separately from I and myself is yes. sort of looking at yourself to some extent a little bit objectively and how do you feel about that? Um, yeah, and I try and be kind to myself as though I were another person. And, I, yeah, I think that's that's how what I think about it. I like it. I like your breakdown of it. It makes sense to me. Talk to me about your inspirations, because that's also very important, especially when you are a barrister. Was there anybody who inspired you while you were in education for being a barrister? I believe that teachers do play an important part in our lives and they sometimes make or break us by the things that they say. 
Has there been anybody in your life? It could be families or teachers or uni mm. who have there's inspired lot, you. There's a lot of... I've been thinking quite a bit about inspiration lately. Um, someone asked me what advice I would give to someone sort of starting out. And I think one of the key pieces of advice I would give is find someone or something or some words that you can lean on when circumstances are, are starting to make you stoop. And and from uh, and, and something that you can aspire to as well that keeps you going. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of resilience and I think it's part of um, ambition. It's, it's a thing that propels you but also keeps you going when you're yeah. starting to lose some momentum. Um, and, the, and those influences will change over time. Um, those influences would change over time. But when I was, when I was much younger, I was very inspired by like human rights lawyers like Asma Jahangir and Michael Mansfield, who um, worked on miscarriage of justice cases and who, 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 who wanted to make things right, who, who wanted to defend people who couldn't defend themselves, who stood up to authority or authoritarian regimes, who were interested in underdogs and righting wrongs. And that was always deeply inspirational to me. And that's the kind of work I wanted to go into. And I remember reading um, Sister Helen Pregen's The Death of Innocence, which got me very interested in death penalty cases and miscarriages of justice as well. And that's and when I went to university, I mean, and I studied law. Um, a lot of the law, not everything in law is is terribly interesting, or, or will interest you every aspect of it. Um, but the things that kept me going were the practical aspects, the um, you know, getting to work on things like the Innocence Project and working on a real case where we were worried yeah. about the safety of that conviction, and then. Um, going to America and, and working on um, death penalty cases there and, and all that kind of thing. And, and at each stage, you find someone who is in this field or who is sort of inspiring you because of the work that they're doing. And um, so there's been various sort of people as I've gone along who, who have inspired me at that stage. Having gone on to sort of a more entrepreneurial part of my life, um one of the people who, whose story inspired me was um joy mangano who was the inventor of uh the miracle mop and she ah. well, she so she was was sort of a mother of three with i don't think any real business experience previously but she invented a mop that was better than anything that existed at the time and she took it to to shops and nobody wanted it and somehow she managed to get it on tv and then she started a whole empire of basically inventing things to make people's lives easier um because she knew what the problems were and then wanted to make them easier and that really inspired me because as a barrister who has started a company called ivy and normanton which is specializing in courtware for women i wanted to make i wanted to to address this sort of gap in the market where female barristers were considered very much an afterthought yes. in terms of courtware and wanted to do something about it. But I'd spent all my 
um, you know, all my life training to be a lawyer, not a business person. So her story I found, Joy Mangano's story I found very inspiring because I thought, well, if she can do it, then maybe I can do it. And um, yeah, so that that's the answer to that question. <laughs> no, I love it. So how how is it? Another question that will actually follow up with what we've just been speaking about is, could you walk me through a day in your life? Oh, God. I, yeah, no, this is gonna be this is gonna be interesting. <laughs> from from the moment you wake up in the morning to when you get creative within your field, because people seem to think creativity is just a musician, an artist. No, we all have creativity within us when we're doing our work, but it's how we implement it into what we're doing that counts. Could you walk me through a day in your life and how it actually is? Well, <clears throat> it varies, you see. So at the moment, um, so I'm I'm a criminal barrister at Doughty Street. Um, so I, I I have a primarily a crime practice. I also do some professional discipline and, and other public law and other areas. Um, so when I'm doing pure crime work, uh, I get up and I'm, I'm totally focused on my case, going to court and, and, you know, thinking about my case and thinking about the work I've got to do for my clients. At the moment, I'm on secondment at uh, Kingsley Napley uh, Solicitors. So I'm presenting cases on behalf of the um, Health and Care Professions Council. So I'm working from home at the moment. Um so that so I'm not in court as much as I was before. I mean, what is a typical day during the course of this <laughs> pandemic? Nothing's typical anymore. Um, but also having founded Ivy and Normanton, um, we're in the first year of this company running. Um, there are sort of peaks and flows as we as we sort of um launch new things like the court hijab. Yes. So at the moment, a typical day is um i get up around sort of 6 30 um and for the beginning part of the day i sort of argue with my partner over who's going to make coffee and then we'll sort of split the split the job somehow um, and then i'll spend the first sort of part of the day um maybe the first couple of hours doing admin for for crime work or for ivy and normanton and then I'll jump on and do Kingsley Napoli work for about seven hours. Wow. And then after that, I'll do Ivy Normanton work for another sort of few hours. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that, and in what's, whatever's involved there. And, it, and then it depends because with the sort of jobs that I'm doing if I've got a hearing then I'll have to sort of shift everything around the hearing if I've got huge order then I've got to sort of shift everything around the huge order but roughly there are three things that I'm normally doing every day and that's sort of my hours my bar work my crime work and then the business when do you get time for yourself not very often. Wow. <laughs> I just wanted to, I just wanted to throw that in. It's, wow. I squeeze it in. I squeeze it in here and there. It's often when I feel I have the least time. Um, I can't remember where I read it uh, somewhere and it was, 
I can't remember if it was a Dalai Lama and it, someone said, uh, I think he said, like, I meditate three times a day except for when I'm really busy and then I meditate, you know, six times a day. And I think sometimes you, you have to force yourself to take some time, otherwise you never will. And often there will reach a point where I just get very tired and then I will just listen to my body and do nothing, notwithstanding the fact you know, there are always a few more emails or something like that I could be sending. I just make, I just have to stop. And then I will sort of force myself to go take some time. And I think I've gotten better at that the older I've gotten, because I think the older you get, the better you are at giving yourself permission to do things. Because you, to some extent, you've I think I think you build on your successes and you say, well, you know, I, I managed to get so far having done this. Yeah. So, you know, I think I, I'll be able to carry on a little bit more even if I take a break now. It's, it's so crazy because I know that your day is full packed all the time. And for you to be able to just meditate, is it, someone taught me that you can meditate anywhere. And I had to understand what meditation is and how it works, especially when you're doing your work. It could be you're interviewing people every day. It could be you being a barrister. But what you said is absolutely really true, where you can meditate anywhere and meditation is actually good for the soul. I see. I, I use the meditation more as a, as an analogy for taking time for yourself. Yeah. I'm not terribly... I, I, I have done meditation in the past, but I'm not terribly good at keeping my mind totally, totally clear. And I think that is being very present is what I find very difficult. But I find, I find walking is, is my meditation in a way. It's a means of sort of, and providing some sort of creative space as well. Um, it's normally when I'm moving because as, as often I'm sort of sat down and, and I need to get up and move. I can't, I can't always just be sat in one place. You seem like, like a very oh. focused person when you're on, if you have a, if you have a trial or you're working, you seem very focused. You seem like this is what I'm doing. So for you to come away from that, do you feel like you're not portray, um, portraying what you're doing? You're just, how can I say it in a way that makes sense? Um, you feel like you're not giving it your all if you feel like you're taking time for yourself. That that makes sense. I do, yeah, I see that. I I wouldn't I wouldn't always describe myself as to terribly focused because I think some of the best times are when I'm in a state of flow, when I'm when I'm totally involved in something, totally yeah. engaged, and um, and 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 I can find it really hard to get into states of flow because I can get quite easily distracted. And I think that's a, I think that is a condition of a modern age when we're sort of used to hearing Same. our phones and everything pinging off all the time. Um, so sometimes I just have to sort of sit and force myself to do several tasks. Or and if I can't, then I'll try and intersperse them and just try and chip away at them. This yeah. idea of chipping away at things is quite important to me because often I find it quite difficult, intimidating to do, sit and do one whole task. So I think to myself, well, if I can just chip away at several, then over time they will all be done. Um, but yeah, I, I think that is probably the, the sort of the way that I go about things. 
It sounds good to me. You have a structure. So what is the most powerful aspects of being a barrister? Where do you find your power when it comes to being a barrister? I think I find it this idea of responsibility, I think, is important to me. I think when it's when it's my client, I am you know, I, I appreciate that it's an honour to be to be in a position to represent this person. It's taken me a long time to get to this position and I take it seriously. It's this person's life um, that I am, you know, that I, not that I'm responsible for, but it's a key event in this person's life. You know, whether or not you go to prison can affect several other factors in your life yes. or or what order is imposed or the impact of a conviction or it has an enormous impact on someone's life. It's a responsibility I take seriously. Um, and, 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 and so being in that position uh, sort of gives me focus. Um, I think that's the power of it, but also this idea of integrity as well. Um, at the bar, your integrity is very important because as as a as a member of as as an advocate uh, you are an officer of the court your word carries a lot of sway and if you are found to be dishonest um or to jeopardize that in any way the implications are enormous um and so you know defending someone to the best of my ability maintaining my integrity um these are key things that are important to me as a barrister but also um, a, sense, a sense of justice and, and fairness as well. I try, and I try and maintain that. That's part of the reason that I started Ivy and Normanton, because I felt that there was an imbalance in the way that, uh, you know, women at the bar were, were being dressed. And it seems a small thing, doesn't it? You know, clothing in the grand scheme of things. But when we are all doing the same job or working exceedingly hard when i started the company and i and i felt that there wasn't the same offering for women at the bar in terms of our legal dress yeah um it seemed unfair to me that when we do such an important job and we are equal to our male peers that we shouldn't that this was a representation that we had not achieved proper equality um notwithstanding the fact we've been at the bar for over 100 years and then ivy and normanton has also been another vehicle for me to try and address the issue of inclusion at the bar because the bar has a representation has a reputation for being a very white very male um upper and middle class environment and I wanted Ivy and Normanton as a sort of vehicle for me to try and address that imbalance by providing images of more diverse images of what a woman in law looks like um, and trying to promote uh, and trying to promote that so for example the Ivy and Normanton hijab that I created with my friend Maria Mir at Doughty Street. Um, that came about because as a hijab wearing barrister, she couldn't find the right sort of hijab to wear in court. Yeah. And uh, that just seemed nuts to me. So um, we worked together to make this hijab and it's had an enormous response because 
a lot of people who are looking at the bar and looking at the law um, who come from Muslim backgrounds, especially hijab-wearing women, um, I think they, it, it really speaks to them because it makes them feel like there is a place at the bar for them. And so, you know, in, in addressing um, imbalances is important to me as a person, as a barrister, as a businesswoman, maintaining integrity and doing a, trying to do a good job to the best of my ability in whatever I'm doing. How do trying you feel, to maintain high standards, I suppose. How do you feel that women are now being treated within, within law? Because like you said, it's predominantly male. It was predominantly male. I know things are evolving slowly. But how do you feel women are being treated now compared to, say, 100 years ago? Do you feel like we are evolving to become better? Or do you feel like there are still things that need to be done? in order for a woman like yourself, who is a superb barrister in what you do, how do you feel that we can help each other so that when the next generation of barristers come in, they can also evolve to help open doors so that the next generation of barristers coming in have it a little bit easier? So I think the initial, I think your initial question was, what's the situation for women at the moment? Yeah. How's, how's it going on and how can we improve it for, for those coming up? Um, I mean, when, um, when Ivy Williams and Helena Normanton, who are the first two women to, to, to become members of the bar joined, they had an incredibly difficult time being instructed by anyone. Um, because there was still a perception that women were not equal to the same level of work that men were. Um, and that was sort of where we started. And they had to fight legal battles just, just to get to this position to be lawyers, um, to be barristers. Um, and we have moved on from there now so that women are instructed in very high profile cases and are doing a higher level of work. But it's, there are still some structural inequalities in the way that the law operates that makes it very difficult for women at the bar to, to stay there um, and to succeed and, and to reach those higher echelons. And I think one of the big problems with that is, one of the big problems with retention is the difficulties that are experienced by people with families because there is yes. still an expectation that women will maintain the um, uh, the heaviest burden in terms of raising children. And um, it can be very, very difficult for women to recover their careers once they take a career break because the way it works at the independent bar, at least, um, is that um, you build up your, you do your pupillage, your apprenticeship. Um, uh, so six months so following someone and then six months on your feet and then you're qualified. And then you, um, your, your chambers will normally decide if they're going to take you on as a tenant or not, sort of full-time member of chambers, not just an apprentice. So some chambers are 12 months, some are 18 um, so once you get past that stage you're, and you're on your feet representing clients, you're building relationships with solicitors. 
And then if you have a good relationship with solicitors and they will continue instructing you and the idea is that they will sort of start instructing you on, on more serious stuff as you, as you build up your experience. Okay. Um, and, and your career gets a sort of momentum going where you have regular solicitors, you have regular clients. Yeah. Um, and then if you take a career break, the fear there is always that your solicitors will forget you and go and get someone else True. who they instruct regularly. Um, and then you will have to build all that up again. And there is a real, um, uh, what's the word? If, if advocacy is something that if you're not doing it constantly, you you do start to, it, it sort of starts to dribble out of your ears and you start to forget it a bit. And because of the, there's so many changes in, in the law and, and the way things operate, um, even if you take a short break, the fear is that you'll struggle to get back into it. So there is, I think, an enormous anxiety and concern that when women take a big career break, how they're going to get back into it. But then even once you get past that, the difficulty is, um, so you do have children, how, especially at certain areas like the criminal bar where things are very last minute. Yes. Cases come in last minute. How you can organise something like childcare? So it's not unusual at five o'clock to be told that you're going to Newcastle the next day, or, or you know that your trial has come in. Told on Tuesday evening that your trial has come in, and you've got to prep a trial overnight. And you know if your child is sick or something like that, you know it's extremely difficult for you to manage. So. You know, those are some of the big problems that the that the bar has, and I and they affect women a lot. And one of the one of the recent issues that have come up is extended court hours, whereby the courts, in order to clear the backlog, the um, the Department of Justice, Minister of Justice is suggesting. Um, or has done for for the magistrates court, and they've trialed it for the crown court. Um, extended court hours, starting earlier and finishing later. Uh-huh. Um, and if you if you imagine that if you're finishing court very late, and then you've got to get home, and then you've got to prepare for the next day, exactly, it makes it makes it extremely difficult. And then if you throw children into that, it's even harder. So these are all issues that make it very difficult. I think for women and I mean I've, I've given talks I've given talks at schools um, and uh, and I've been asked you know what what do you think what what would you tell women um, going into the legal profession I, I would say you need to think carefully what it what is it you want in your life and um, you need to to have some sort of rough plan because if you want to work in legal aid and just do human rights cases working in legal aid and you want to live in London and you want to yeah. own your house and you want to have a partner who's, you know, running a startup, all these kinds of things, and you want children, not all of those things are going to be compatible with a, a long-term career at That's the bar. True. It's going to be very difficult to do all of those things. And it may be that you need to, to, to think quite carefully about what you want and how you can actually make it happen. Yeah. Um, and I think women have to think about these things far more than men do. Sometimes I still don't think it's fair 
that we have that burden on us whereas men get to kind of be free yeah and and do whatever they desire to do another question that i had for you which is quite can be quite controversial and i know there is only so much that you can tell me about cases that you do but one question that i did want to ask you is how do you defend somebody if you know they are guilty well firstly i don't ever know for sure because i wasn't there yeah true if they are guilty um the way that the justice system is established is that there are in the magistrates court so there are two different types of courts the talking about the criminal justice system there are the lower courts the magistrates courts and there are the crown courts who um well that's where you have the judge and then you have the jury in the crown court um in the magistrates court you'll either have um, a bench of two or three magistrates or a district judge um if we're talking about say more some of the more serious cases let's say it's it's going to be the jury who ultimately decides whether this person has done this thing or not. Um, and in the less serious cases, it'll, it'll be the the magistrates or the judge who ultimately decides. And they make that decision after having heard evidence from the prosecution and from the defence. So they've heard two sides of evidence. And then there is um, a standard of proof that the prosecution who bring the case have to prove the standard too. And they have to make those, um, they make have to make the bench or the, or the jury sure of their case in order. And they have to prove certain elements of the offence that they are seeking against this defendant. And the starting point is always that the defendant is innocent until proven guilty. And to me, that's always seemed like a good system because it involves several elements. It involves um, a starting point. The defendant is innocent until they are proven otherwise. It involves the allegation and the elements that need to be proven. It involves two parties arguing two different sides and looking, providing some different evidence and, and different ways of looking at the evidence, testing it. And then it involves the application of law, and then it involves parties, a separate party, who's not spent a lot of time looking at one side of the case to evaluate that and then reach a decision as to whether they have been persuaded to the requisite standard that someone um, has committed the offence or not. Now, when someone asks you, how can you defend someone whose case you don't believe? I think about it this way. If it were you or someone you care about, how would you feel if um, someone determined that they were not going to try particularly hard to represent your client, to represent you or someone you care about, because they weren't persuaded by your by you or your your relative's account you the way that the system operates is that there are several checks and balances there um, so that this person has as fair an opportunity to 
to have their case heard as as much as the other side does. And I, I think that is the fairest way of doing it, because if you were simply dismissive of the other person's account, yeah. then you could get it totally wrong. I mean, um, yesterday there were a number of postal workers whose convictions were overturned because um, they, they were accused of fraud, um, having been accused of taking money from the post offices that they were running. It then emerged that there was an enormous glitch in the post office system, which oh. meant that they were not stealing money. It was a glitch in the system and that they were wrongly accused. Now, if their barristers had simply said, well, just looks like a simple case of fraud there. I'm not going to try very hard. Or I'm not going to have this, I'm not going to do this case. Then these people would have gone undefended. Yeah, it's true. That's why I think it is necessary to some extent to, to, to simply put put you know the system I think is effective um but when I have a client whose case whose evidence you know if my view of their case is that the evidence against them is very strong then obviously I'll advise them of this because it has an impact on um the sentence that they may receive because you get credit for pleading guilty at the earliest opportunity Um. um and so I'll say to them you know this is what you're accused of this is what needs to be proven. This is the evidence in the case. This is my view. This is what the sentence is likely to be. And this is the discount you'll get for pleading at various different stages. What do you want to do? And then they make a decision. And whatever their decision is, if they want to go for sentence, then I'll mitigate to get them the best sentence they possibly can, putting forward their side, knowing the prosecution will put forward their side as well. And if they want to go for trial, then we will put forward the best case we possibly can. Um, and, and then ultimately it will be the court that decides. How do you emotionally disconnect yourself from a case? Because some ca- some cases, I'm sure you have done, can be really emotional. Mm. And sometimes you feel like your emotions are connecting to the case, which can be complicated. How do you detach yourself from your emotions to make sure you're doing the best that you can for the case? Um, some cases are more emotional than others. Um, some cases are more emotional than others. Um, and, and the funny thing, my partner's in um, a, a criminal barrister as well, and he had um, a recent murder case Um and the facts of that one were very sad. Um, and even though it's his case, it sort of affected the whole household because the, the, the sort of futility and, and silliness of, of the whole situation, it's a, a sort of stabbing that was so unnecessary, has, it sort of affects the whole house. And... Um, and, and and I think it was something that was a lot more difficult when I was younger. Um, but I was also doing sort of involved in more death penalty cases where the stakes were very high as well. Wow. Um, and and I think you have to try and guard against vicarious trauma as as a lawyer when you're dealing with very difficult cases um, and you're dealing with difficult facts. Um, and reading about horrible things, you know, 
I, I remember I was doing sort of an internship in Cambodia dealing with Khmer Rouge, um, the Khmer Rouge cases, and, and that involved sort of torture and accounts of, of crimes against humanity. And um, those cases are difficult to walk away from. And I think that you have to try and simply accept that it is awful. But also um, make some time to, to, to for yourself to, to have enjoyable things and to be with people who you love and to try and not simply immerse yourself in the negative. Yes. And and. I'm also quite a, a, a quite a proactive person. So I think to myself, you know, are there any lessons that we can learn from this? Is there anything positive that we can do to try and learn some positive lessons or, or, or to bring something good out of this? Um, and sometimes that can be, you know, education. Can we, can we educate young people about knives? Can we educate people about joint enterprise? Can we try and do something that turns this negative into a positive um, or at least enables us to continue surviving because it's not callous to say, to, to try and move on from something that is really um, devastating because if you simply allow it to drag you down, you won't be able to do anything else. You won't be able to help anyone else. So you have to keep surviving. Um, and it's, I think we'll all find our different ways of surviving. Sometimes that will be some person's meditation or yoga that'll be another yeah, person true. more specifically me is ice cream and you know that's me too ice cream and kebab in front of you know some <laughs> sort of comedy or you know that's that's me <laughs> oh man. if you if there was one question that you wished people would ask you more that they've never asked you or they feel reluctant to ask you what would that question be and why Oh, that's, oh, do you know what? I don't know how to answer that. What do I wish people would ask me? <sighs> I don't think about that very often. I don't really think about, because more often than not, I'm volunteering information. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. That's why I wanted to ask you the question. I know it. I know because of what you do, you withheld so much information. Um, and there's also another question which can kind of connect to that because because you're dealing with so many different cases, it could be murder, whatever it might be. Do you guys get help with talking out to somebody else? It could be a therapist. It could be just somebody to listen to you because you are also dealing with so much yourselves, knowing that you have all this information and that you cannot speak to necessarily other people about it. Do you guys get help? Um, so there is an effort, I think, to improve well-being at the bar. And I think there's starting to be more, um, there's some more effort to try and get people talking about when they're struggling. But there is no formal assistance uh, for people in, 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 you know, dealing with difficult cases um, to, to assist them in processing that or dealing with that. And I think it's something that you see in a lot of different professions, actually, be it the police or the army or, um, you know, those involved in law. Um, the, 
there's an expectation I think that you will just be able to handle it and if you can't handle it then you, you know you need to you know can't handle the fire then just get out um then I don't think that's always helpful I think yeah. that um it is it, it is better to sort of admit and talk about these things sometimes when you're struggling and I think that there is a very there's a real sort of collegiate atmosphere amongst different in, industries that do deal yes. with difficult facts um to try and support each other and I think you know it's in the medical profession as well it's it's in all sorts of different professions where you deal with difficult facts and um but that is there is definitely a tension between someone who deals with difficult facts and circumstances um and an expectation that that you should just be able to handle it if you're in that profession and then also the realities of actually dealing with those cases um and i think in those circumstances it is helpful if there are other colleagues who you can say this was just awful you know and i and you know i'm struggling with this a little bit today and sometimes if we can have candid conversations i think that's that's the best thing because if you think that everyone else is coping and you're the only one who's not then it makes you think that somehow you're 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 lesser than the other people but more often than not we're all struggling we've all got our struggles and it is easier if we can all say you know yeah i've had a drug i had that once and it was horrible and this is how i dealt with it or you know giving people permission to struggle and to admit their struggle um can be helpful and then I think it helps us try and deal with things in more healthy ways rather than just going home and seeking solace in bottles of wine um, yes just to try and find more healthy ways of dealing with these things um I, I, yeah I, I I think I think that's the best way of sort of processing it but it's not easy it's not easy I think especially at the beginning um when you are trying to establish yourself and you are questioning yourself more um than when you are a bit more established i like that thank you for sharing that because that to me it's very very important for people to understand that although we are all in different professions we all do get stuck mm. sometimes or feel like we're carrying a burden on and we'll feel like we're the only ones with this burden which sometimes we feel because we're humans at the end of the day. Mm, so absolutely. what are you most proud of that you stand for as an individual and how do you share that within your passion, within your work? What am I most proud of for what I stand for as an individual? I don't know that I, I necessarily, I, I don't say to myself, I'm Carlia and I stand for this. Yeah. Um, I am... I have I have on my desk um, a little framed picture, uh, no, a post-it note, and it says, I'm very proud of myself and what I'm doing. And I wrote it down once after, um, I can't remember after what had happened, but it was in a moment um, where I felt proud of myself. And I keep it on my desk sometimes as a reminder that I am proud of myself and what I'm doing because it took a long time to get here. I envisioned being a barrister. I envisioned being a barrister at Doughty Street and I was, and I struggled to get here 
it didn't happen overnight. I wasn't someone who, you know, I, I have had help, uh, you know, from my family. I've had some the benefit of some financial help. But, you know, I never went to all private schools. I didn't come from, you know, highly connected people in the legal industry or anything like that. My dad, you know, they, my mum and dad and their families came over with nothing and they, See? you know, made some, they did the best they could. And then um, I wanted to be a barrister and it took me four years, four attempts to get pupillage. And um, that was four years and there was a lot of rejection. And it was at the point where I thought I never was going to get it, that I did. And then those sort of early years were very hard. And then um, I ended up applying to my dream set. And then they, you know, I, I got in. Um, and and then I, I envisioned this business. And I set it up. And it, and it has been hard. It's been hard. I'm not going to pretend that it happened overnight. I won't pretend that I, I waltzed through it. There have been tears. There has been moments of doubt and struggle, but I've carried on. And so every success is built on that. Um, and, that, and that I'm proud of. Don't you find that's a better story though? Even hearing it now, and now that you, you're about to share that with thousands of people who are going to listen to this and be like, wow, that's amazing. You can come from nothing. Because people seem to think that you have to be in this circle where you go to a certain university where you have very wealthy parents. Um, people do have that mindset. And I've spoken to a lot of people. And they seem to think that if you're a lawyer, a, a solicitor, a barrister, anything of high stature... Mm -hmm. that you must be uh you must have money or you must have power or you must know somebody who knows somebody but hearing your story lets people know that you can come from absolutely nothing mm. and still get to where you want to and be proud of yourself because guys you can't see this but i'm gonna tell you Kalia is actually looking on her desk i can see her looking at her desk <laughs> And she has the note on her desk, okay? <laughs> so I'm letting you know the note is real because it's right there. So, so, But it's nice to see your emotions when you're talking about it because obviously people can't see your emotions, mm. whereas I can. And I love being able to express that through my voice to let the listeners know exactly mm. that you are passionate about what you do. So thank you for sharing that. What I'd like to say, what I'd like to say is... Um, I can't, I, I didn't, I, I like to be quite upfront about sort of what help I've had, because I think yeah. it is disingenuous for people to simply say, you just need to work hard and envision and you will get there because I had the benefit of some financial help from my parents. Um, and so that, that helped me because it meant that there were times when I could do unpaid internships and things like that. But not everything was paid. I still had to work really hard. No one wrote the applications for me or got, you know, did it for me. I, I worked hard. And what, but what I will say is this. We do not, I, I think if you look at sort of where you want to be as a, as a race, you know, we don't all start at the same place. We don't all start from the beginning. 
some of us will be further ahead than others. But it is still a race worth running. And I think what I what is very helpful to to consider is to think, where is it I want to be? What do I need to get there? What do I already have? What do I need? And how can I get those things? And it's, sometimes it's thinking outside of the box because I, um, for example, wasn't very well connected in, in the legal industry. Um, and I wanted, and I needed legal experience. So um, like one of the things I did was I, I sort of joined this uh, legal society which, which accepted anyone. And they had a Christmas party at Garden Court um, Chambers, which was a Chambers I really admired. And I went there to go meet people. And I went and I met people and I got talking to barristers and I ended up sort of managing to swing coffee with another bar- with one of those barristers. And then I ended up getting a job and then I sort of made more of it, you know, and then I went somewhere after bar school, I could have just got a paralegal job, but I didn't just get a paralegal job. I found this organization that I really admired called Reprieve. And I went and I volunteered there like a few days a week. And then I worked in a pub the other days of the week so that I could volunteer at the places I wanted to be. And then I met, and then a job came up and then I went for the job, which, you know, and then I, at one point I was doing like three jobs because I was just trying to get as much experience as possible and I was making it all work. But one thing built upon the other and I was identifying. I was like, right, so I didn't get, I didn't get, you know, this application this year. What was missing? What, what do I still need? And then I went and looked for it. If I need more advocacy experience, I went and did advocacy, an advocacy course. Or yeah. I went and tried to get more, ad, you know, uh, went to the free representation unit and did some cases. It's not enough to simply say, I just don't have the connections. I just don't have, you know, this or that. What could you be doing to improve your situation? And some for some people, it's less. And for some people, it's more that you need to do. And it is unfortunate that it is that way. And I wish that it was more equal. Um, but it is not impossible. You, you, it, it does require some thought and some strategy. And, um, and, and you can achieve what you want, even if, you, if it's not given to you on a plate. It is achievable. Yeah. You can do it. I love that. I love that. Do you feel that you are in your happiest place right now? Or do you feel what let me rephrase it in a better way what is stopping you from complete happiness a lack of time I think because there are things that I enjoy doing I'd like more time for myself and I don't have very much time for myself um I think if I had some some more of that that would be nice We'll get you some more of that, okay? Yeah, if I didn't need to sleep, that would be great. I think sleep is a waste of time, but I need it. Do you? And you know what? I used to think that too, but then I, but then my body started telling me I needed it. Yeah, yeah. And then I started feeling bad for sleeping. I don't know if you ever felt like that before. Uh, yeah, I don't feel bad for sleeping. I just wish I didn't need to because then, yeah. you know you know there's some sort of I'm sure there's a novel or something lodged somewhere inside me I get that novel bashed out you know I'd watched all the main films I wanted to watch I'd be like 
you know, oh, doing all this other stuff, but I need sleep, so it's not going to happen. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Too. <laughs> what is your earliest experience of realizing that language had power? Oh, that's interesting. What's my most ex- earliest experience of realizing language had power? Um, I don't know. What I can say is I speak Greek and um and speak English and having the facility to express yourself in more than one language has always been useful because there are certain words that don't translate into English and it gives you more of a palette to paint with it and also enabled my mum to shout at me in front of people (laughs) (laughs) in another language whilst being very polite to you know uh, non-Greek speakers Um, so I think uh, contribution from Andrula would be that is why it's uh, that's the power of language (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Well, my mum does that to me in French, so I totally understand where you're <laughs> yeah, coming right. from. Yeah, this is really, really true. <laughs> when was the last time you felt totally at peace with yourself? Oh, that's interesting. Time I felt totally at peace with myself. I don't know. There's different. There are only ever sort of moments, I think, where I just I don't know if I understand the question, to be honest, because there are moments where I feel peaceful. There are moments where I am pleased with my day's work and I feel I've earned the rest that I'm having and I'm enjoying the rest and I feel I'm using it in the most productive way possible. And that is a peaceful, satisfied moment. But I don't know if that's different to being at peace with yourself. I think being at peace with yourself has something to do with um, being content with where you are at and what you are doing. And I think for the most part I am. But I think if you are someone who has sort of quite a lot of ambition to some extent, you're never totally at peace because you're constantly sort of thinking forward mm-hmm. um, where your net's going to be. That's true. And then, but then all of this as well is um, wrapped up in, in, in the situation that we find ourselves with COVID um, because we're not, this isn't our, our normal reality. This is unique circumstances that we are surviving and um and i think there is also a tension there because you're 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 not doing what you would have been doing maybe but then yeah. you're also getting other negatives but then also other benefits um of having a quieter world um and and it's learning to be comfortable with that um so i can't give you a time I can I can tell you that there are peaceful moments when I'm pleased and satisfied, um, but may but I'm broadly at peace. I think I'm at peace with myself, where I am and who I am. Yeah, certainly much more than I was when I was younger. But um, I, I would say because there are things that I still want to achieve, it's like having a piece of grit in your shoe that you're still yes. sort of. You're still sort of, you know, 
slightly restless but I know good analogy, who I actually. am and what I'm doing and I'm I'm comfortable with that and that's one of the nice things about you know being in your 30s <laughs> yeah me too actually yeah it is quite cool yeah I think we're at when you're in your 30s I feel that you're you're in a good place because you're not too young to do anything and you're definitely not too old to do anything you're in you're in that age where the world is I think the world is your oyster regardless and everybody has a different time of getting there or becoming yeah um somebody said to me when I asked them the question I just asked you they said it's not a destination it's a journey Mm. and that's a good analogy of it also um I said you know what I'm going to take that with me because that's a good way of looking at life and looking at things in your own way I think um, so. I think so. I think that your 20s are very difficult, actually. I found my 20s was a period where I was having to sort of like come good on all this promise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I felt pressure to, you know, come good on all all of my aspirations and all the sort of education and all the, you know, foundational stuff. But also I was still totally finding my way. Um I think by the time you sort of start to get into your thirties, you, you you start having a body of experience and survival yeah. to build on. Because I find it very powerful this idea that I survive that, so I can survive this. When you're in twenties, God, you still don't know your ass from your elbow, and you yes, um, <laughs> and, you st- and you're still figuring it out, and you don't know if you're going to survive it because you, <laughs> you haven't survived anything yet. Um, so you just got to hold on to the sides of this boat that's like rocking <laughs> and breaking, and uh, you're like, oh shit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been there loads of times. Oh my god. Oh my days. So I've only got two more for you, <laughs> and I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Um, my second to last question for you is: It's a long time coming for this, actually. So, what would you like your legacy to be? Oh. I mean, you always ask these very sort of interesting questions. <laughs> it's, it's, I have a very, very open-minded, um, authentic being about life. And I wish that more people had that open-mindedness about life and people. Because without that, how can you evolve? How can you teach other people? Or how can you become your best? Mm. And I think I just think that it's very important to ask questions. If you don't ask questions, how will you learn? It's like you do. You ask, Listen, if, if I was to ask you to ask me 10 questions, I'm sure I would be stuck on the spot when it came to law. <laughs> yeah, I think you ask very good questions, though. And I'm pleased you are. Do you know, I walk um, near where I live. I've discovered this... Um, this cemetery it's a very old cemetery some people find them quite morbid but I actually quite find them sort of I like not. them I like them yeah. I find them a place of reflection and it's a very old one and I think when you're sort of looking back at this uh, sort of a physical relic of someone's life it doesn't yeah. always amount to much um and and sometimes they're so old and they're half buried and sometimes they're quite new um but ultimately it, it it's it's not much, is it? A sort of thing in the ground that hardly anyone would notice if they weren't walking past this morbid place that not everyone likes. Um, but it does show how transient everything is and how, at the end of the day, there's not a huge amount 
necessarily that's left. If you've ever have you ever looked at sort of these sort of planetary photo like photos, space photos? Oh yeah. We we are I I like quite like astronomy. We are a tiny, tiny speck floating through an infinite universe. Yeah. You and your problems are a mere blink in time. We don't ultimately matter at all. Um, And I, and so I think the thing that I would like if I, I think if I were hit by a bus tomorrow, that's the way I prefer to think about it rather than my legacy. I want everyone who I love to know fully that I love them and I'll tell them to their face and in messages and I'll, and I want them to know, never to be any doubt, that I love them and that I think highly of them and that I care about them. And anyone who I have any issues with, I want that to be cleared and to be addressed and made clear and and and, and I want that gone. And every opportunity that comes my way that I can reasonably take and, and make the most of, I want to make the most of it. And I want to be as self-actualized as possible the best version of myself that I can be and and if I could do those things I think I think I would feel um at peace with what I'd left behind and the life that I'd lived up to that point and I think that's the best legacy like if I can use such a grand word that I could give or leave behind that's good enough for me. I think that's good enough for everyone else too. <laughs> <laughs> the main thing is, is if it's good enough for you, yeah, then it should be good enough for everyone else because it's it's yours. You own it. You have it. It's yours. Mm. So my final question for you is, where can we find? I've had the pleasure of interviewing you today, and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> for you just being yourself, you saying how things are. You've been honest. And that's transcend through you to me, energy-wise. And that's so important for me. Energy is such a big thing to me. Mm. If anybody else would like to know more about you as a person, where can they find you? Um, I suppose I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and I don't have a, a huge social media presence. I suppose that's sort of what we the best way of people being out there and being connected um i'm i'm on twitter but i don't tweet very often um i don't put too much i try not to put too much of myself out on social media um but if if you if you're in trouble and you need a lawyer um you can go to (laughs) doughty street website and get hold of me through my clerks if you are a troubled young person who, you know, wants some advice while I'm driving to the shops, um, I'm happy to have a chat with you. Just <laughs> reach out over LinkedIn. If you are um, a legal professional who requires some um, legal wear, some legal attire, then go to Ivy and Normanton. And if you have a query, you can go to info at ivyandnormanton.com and I'll probably be answering um and if you you know are someone who wants some idle chat on twitter then you might find me there but probably not 
I, I, I love that end part. <laughs> I might be there, but I doubt it. I doubt <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. I want to thank you so much for coming on the Yes People Thank podcast. you for We've having been me. Such it's a been a lot of fun. <laughs> no, it definitely has, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Yes People podcast. And please remember, you can subscribe to Spotify, iTunes, Google Play and any other platform that you prefer listening to, please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also donate to the Yes People podcast by simply going to the Savvy Rocks website or just typing in paypal.me forward slash us people podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Stay happy, stay positive, and as always, please continue to be kind to one another. Yeah, I'm horrified at the things that we didn't mention the things that happen in your 30s. What falls off? What turns different colours? What turns different colours? Don't ask, Sorry, I'm not putting that online. I know, hold on, is there something come missing? I'm gonna start looking at everything. It was turning different you let go, time as you let go, now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Now is my time to shine. Time as you let go, time as you let go, now is my time to shine. Enjoy the ride, open those eyes, see the light, ignite that fire inside it, let it breathe breath into life, push all your fears to the side, control your mind, it's all alright, enjoy your life, the joy is mine, commit to you, you got the tools, everything you do, you make the rules, sometimes you need.